Welcome to Victory GP. We're excited you've joined us, and we hope you're impacted and inspired by this message from Pastor Charlotte Quist. Messianic prophecies, we're going to talk about that this morning. And it's one of those subjects you almost have to take a lot of time, and you kind of have to do some, you know, do some thinking about exactly what that's all about. And this morning, I want to try to walk us through that a little bit, and just to give us a good idea of how that goes and how that's put together. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 16, starting from verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered so famously, and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This question that Jesus asked his disciples is really a, such a foundationally, fundamentally important one. Even Mark includes it in his gospel. You know, Mark, who everything happens immediately. Mark chapter 8, Luke mentions it in Luke chapter 9. Who is Jesus? That question is, is so important for each and every one of us. It, it is well worth looking at this question again. But did you get that last uh, verse in the message, in the, in the passage we just read? It says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Jesus said that to Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, it's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that actually gives us a revelation of who he is. And so that's why we're going to pray this morning. Because it's not going to be all the words I'm going to share and all the messages that you've heard. It's going to be God himself speaking to you and convincing you through his Holy Spirit of who Jesus is. Let me pray. Father God, this morning, we just look to you. Lord, you are the one who brings light into situations. You are the one who speaks to our very inward being. And this morning, through your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us a revelation of who you are, Lord Jesus, that we might better understand, that we might better center our lives around who you are, that we might give you preeminence in all things, that you would do that, Lord God, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. You know, the uh, Apostle John, when he wrote his Gospels, he ended it in uh, John chapter uh, 21, verse 25. He wrote, he wrote these words. He says, and there are also many, many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. So the truth is that Jesus is so much more than anything we could ever say. Uh, for one thing, the Bible presents him to us in, in so many different ways. There are so many different titles for Jesus. Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, the Suffering Servant. We read about Jesus, the King. Jesus, the Man. And Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, the Good Shepherd. We read stories about Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus, our Healer. I could go on and on. There are so many titles that Jesus has been given. And it admittedly at times can be a little overwhelming. 
And sometimes that confusion is because in the Bible, Jesus is sometimes doing more than just one thing at a time. Today, you would say that he's a multitasker or something like that. You know, two weeks ago, Pastor Charlotte spoke on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and that was on Palm Sunday. We're going to unpack that a little bit more this morning. Because on that day, Jesus came down, you know, the little valley from, uh, of the Mount of Olives and entered into Jerusalem riding on a, a little donkey. And that was a very, very kingly thing for him to do. Because the Mount of Olives is the prophesied location for the Messiah's appearance. In Zechariah chapter 14, we read one of the messianic prophecies, one of the words the Bible uses to tell us what the Messiah is going to be like, who he's going to be. And it says there, then the Lord will go forth, this is from verse uh, uh, 3, and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. It says half of the mountain shall move forward to the north and, and half of it towards the south. I've stood on that mountain, on the Mount of Olives. It was still together. So even though Jesus, on that first Palm Sunday, walked down and riding a donkey uh, off, the, off the Mount of Olives, down that little uh, valley and up again into the eastern gate of Jerusalem, all of this prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet. It is one of those messianic prophecies that sometimes can give us a little bit of trouble. Oftentimes, in those days, king, kings would get themselves a little donkey and they would ride into the city trying to make that prophecy come true, you know, because that was a, a sign of, of humble authority if you're riding on a little donkey. Especially during the Passover, they would do this. And that is when the children of Israel, the Passover, celebrate their freedom from slavery in Egypt. So a king coming down the Mount of Olives, crossing the little valley and climbing up into Jerusalem was going to be a sign Yay, we're going to get rid of all the Egyptians. No, they've been rid of already. We'll get rid of all the government authorities of whatever day that is. And we'll be free again. We'll be able to establish ourselves once more. The Jews of Jesus' day desired that. They desired to be free from, at that time, the Romans. They were desiring to be freed by a Messiah or a Savior. I mean, that's what Zechariah 9.9 says. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, it says, your king is coming to you. He is just and, and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Zechariah was the second last book of the Old Testament. It was written about 500 years before Christ. And the Israelites had been waiting for years already for this kind of thing to happen for this prophecy, this prediction about who the Messiah would be, when he would come, to come, and, and they were waiting for it to come to pass. And it did, in a, in a certain way, on that Palm Sunday, on that first Sunday, or Palm Sunday. Jesus was announcing his kingship in a way. But on that occasion, Jesus was not going into Jerusalem to set up his kingship, even though many of his followers wanted him to do exactly that. Because that was something the Messiah had been prophesied to do. Even the shouting that day, people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. That could mean, be king, be king. Or it could also mean, save us or, or redeem us. And when he didn't do that, what the people wanted him to do, they did, when he didn't do what the people wanted him to do, 
there was some confusion and there was some turmoil and there was maybe more than a little bit of chaos. See, here's part of the problem then. The Bible, we, we know, is a very prophetic book. Dr. Ron Swanson says that, uh, who wrote the book, The Earth's Final Hour, he writes that there is so much of the Bible that is prophecy. Prophecy, which means telling what will happen in the future. A lot of what the Bible has prophesied, has told what will happen in the future, has already happened. But there are still, how many of you know, many things yet to happen. But when you look at all of that, all that what is written in the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament, you see that there are many of those prophecies that are particular to the Messiah, to Jesus. And that's what we call the Messianic prophecies. Prophecies about the Messiah, the promised Savior, the, the anointed one, he's sometimes called the Christ, the sacrifice. And, and these prophecies are scattered all through the Bible. Starting even from the, from, the first book of, you know, from the first book in the Bible of Genesis, we find the first prophecy, I think it's Genesis 3.15, that says, you know, when God tells the serpent in the Garden of Eden, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the, to the serpent. And he says, between your offspring and hers. And then he says, he, that would be referring to Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right? God says, Jesus will crush Satan's head, right? And all Satan will do is be able to bruise, bruise just bruise Jesus' heel. What a great prophecy, right? It hasn't been completed yet, but it will. We can be sure of that. So we have this great group of prophecies that are specific to the Messiah. And if you take them all together, some don't seem to make sense at all. For example... Some of the prophecies concerning where the Messiah would be from, where he'd be born. One prophecy says that God would call his son out of Egypt. Although there's another prophecy that says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread, which the city of David. Another prophecy says that he would be called a Nazarene, someone who comes from Nazareth. So which is it? Does the Messiah come from Egypt? Does he come from Bethlehem? Does he come from Nazareth? Now I know that we've all figured this out already, right? Hindsight is 2020. We've just come through Christmas and we know the story of how all of this happened. And, and you know, everything sounds really wise when we say how all of these things are true because it's already happened. That's hindsight. It's easy. It's easy when you say what happened after it has happened. But foresight, ah, saying what will happen before it happens, especially saying what will happen hundreds and thousands of years before it even happens, that's another thing altogether. That's a, that's a God thing, right? Especially when the thing you say seems to be totally impossible totally impossible according to the present situation. God seems to be really good at those. Let me give you an example. In Jeremiah chapter 33, in verse 10, we read this. We say, thus says the Lord. That's how prophecies often start in the Bible with God telling somebody, asking somebody, write this down, and here's what I'm asking you to write. He says, thus says the Lord. In this case, Jeremiah writes, again, there shall be heard in the place of which you say it is desolate without man and without beast, 
in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, that's where he's talking about, that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. He says, again, it will be said, the voice of those who will say, and this is particularly in Hebrew, who will say, praise the Lord of hosts. I can't speak Hebrew, so I'm not going to, I'll stick with English here. For the Lord is good, for his mercies endures forever. And those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. For I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. Basically, it's saying there will be Hebrew heard again in the streets of Jerusalem. And the thing is, it was almost 2,000 years later when God brought this about. And it wasn't until, I think, 1948 and thereabouts where... God brought the people that had been scattered throughout the world, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, back into what was then formed to be a brand new nation of Israel. Until that time, Bible scholars would read that prophecy and say, it doesn't make sense. Hebrew had long ago died out. There were no ancient languages being spoken in the world, especially not Hebrew. And if God 2,000 years ago said, well, they'll be singing Hebrew in the streets of Jerusalem again, People went, I wonder what that means. It's got to mean that there's a, there's, it, it's, an, it's an allegory. It's a metaphor. It's an illustration, but it's not real fact. Until 1948 rolls around, and the British mandate, of course, uh, over Israel, that property. You know the history. Israel becomes a nation. President Dave ben uh, David Ben-Gurion, Gur the first president of Israel, he uh, recognizes that Everybody coming to Israel to form this brand new nation, restart of a, a nation, all speak different languages. They came from all over the place, Germany, Italy, France, Russia. They were from everywhere. Nobody was speaking Hebrew. It had long died out. The only thing they had going, the closest thing to it was what they called Yiddish, which is a little bit like Hebrew, but very slangy and hardly recognizable. Um, and David Ben-Gurion said, what are we going to make all these people learn? Should we all speak English? That seems to be the new language coming up. That was really actually uh, proposed. But you know what they decided? Let's go back to Hebrew, he said. That way everybody has to learn a new language. It's fair for everybody. We all know a little bit. And they made Hebrew the official language. Until, and since that day, they've been speaking Hebrew, the original Hebrew in Israel. What did you think that made the Bible scholars say? Hmm... <laughs> This, this actually could come true. There could actually be a time when children will be singing Hebrew in the streets of Jerusalem, just like God said so long ago. So let me clarify this, all of this, for just a little. In hindsight, and yes, with some wisdom and with some understanding, the Bible, more and more, it has become evident that all these messianic prophecies can be grouped together. We can make sense of them. And that's what I want to help you us do this morning. The Messianic prophecies, which talk about, um, about Jesus and the first coming of the Messiah. We've kind of figured that out. We figured out that the first coming of the Messiah was a two-parter. And we've got here, the, the, the first of these is called the Christmas prophecies. It's the second coming of Christ and the prophecies that were um, fulfilled when Jesus came. And the first group of these, remember I said it's a two-parter when Jesus comes the first time, when the Messiah comes, are called the Christmas prophecies. These are prophecies like, you know, a virgin shall bear a child. 
What an incredible prophecy. Almost, it's impossible, but it happened. This group of prophecies includes some of the ones I was telling you about, you know, born in the city of David in Bethlehem. And, and even some of the prophecies like, I will call my son out of Egypt. And he will be called a Nazarene. Sure, sure we know now. We know now how that happened, remember? Right? Joseph was warned by an angel in a dream that they would try to kill the child, so he was to take him to Egypt. And I like how, how God the Father arranged for Joseph and family to be looked after while they were down there. You know, he gave them gold and frankincense and myrrh. Remember that? You should. It's only been a couple months ago that we had East Christmas. <laughs> or are you one of those people that are saying it's 210 days, shopping days till Christmas? Like that. No, okay. Where do you think you can get the most money for frankincense and myrrh? which were spices used for embalming. If you guessed Egypt, you're right. You're right, Egypt. They were making mummies out of that kind of stuff. So Egypt and the, and the provision of God the Father for Joseph and his, to take care of his family, it's incredible. God thinks of everything, which is amazing. Those are, those are called the Christmas prophecies. And, and, then, and then there's the prophecies about the Messiah's suffering paying the penalty for our sins. The prophecies where he's the one who redeems us, that he's the sacrifice for our sins. And because we've just come through Good Friday and Easter, you know what those are. Those are the Easter prophecies. See, it's a two-parter. When the Messiah, Jesus, came the first time, it can be said that it was kind of a two-parter. He was born, and a whole bunch of, of prophecies, a bunch of scriptures were fulfilled. And then he kind of disappears while he grows up, Sort of, and, and then he comes back on the scene with the Easter prophecies, beginning with John the Baptist, remember that? And kind of like Elijah, you know, turning the hearts of the children towards their fathers and the fathers towards their children, all that. And then all the healings that were prophesied and the deliverances and, and the blind receiving their sight and the deaf hearing and all the teachings about the kingdom of God and, and then the cross and the crucifixion. And then, like we heard last year, last, last week, woohoo! The empty tomb, right? So those are all the, the Easter prophecies. And then we have what's called in the Bible the age of the Gentiles. Bible scholars call this the church age. It's that whole area between when Jesus departs, Acts chapter 1, where he tells the disciples, I'm going. He, he ascends into heaven. There's angels standing around saying, hey, what are you guys looking into heaven for? This Jesus, he's going to come back. In the same way you saw him leave, he's going to come back. He's going to place his foot on the Mount of Olives. And there's Messianic prophecies that say exactly what Jesus is going to do when that happens, when he comes back. But until then, they were to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, the good, the gospel of the sacrifice for sin being paid, and how anyone who would receive, believing, would receive the, their salvation through Jesus. And that whole time, no one knows knew exactly how long it would be. We still don't know exactly how long it would be. It's been almost 2,000 years. We're like maybe six or seven years short of 2,000 years from the moment Jesus was raised up from the Mount of Olives and disappeared into the clouds. Those prophecies, that whole long time, the, the, it's called the church age. Who would have known it would take so long to have all the Gentiles in the world know about Jesus and accept them. All those, whoever, whosoever would come, would come. That whole period of time ends, according to prophecy, at what they call the next group of prophecies, which is the rapture. 
when the rapture happens, that ends the, close, the, the church age, and then we go to a whole new bunch of prophecies about Jesus coming back for his people. 1 Corinthians is one of those where he writes in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 51, it says, this is the Apostle Paul writing, listen, he says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And that's not just what's happening in the nursery. It's, 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 it's prophecy. It's, it's... He, he, he passed... The Apostle Paul wrote this, not me, okay? So he says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. It says, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. Those are the sea prophecies. Those are the rapture prophecies. And some people can kind of just, they like to talk about when exactly that rapture is going to happen, if it's going to happen before the tribulation or after the tribulation or, or in the middle of the tribulation. Or There's all kinds of different theories about that. But we do know one thing. The church age ends with the rapture of the church. And then there are the D prophecies. The Battle of Armageddon is another title for this. In the, in the Bible, this is often referred to as the day of the Lord. You know, that great and terrible day of the Lord. Revelation, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, covers that quite well. But that is not the only place where you'll find prophecies regarding that day in the Bible. This is where Jesus comes with his saints into that great battle. And what happens is, and this is a little scary, but all non-believers are wiped out. They're killed. And then Jesus fulfills the group of prophecies. And this is, um, is the last one. This is, ends with this last group, the, the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000-year reign. And that includes where he sets up the kingdom of peace for 1,000 years. Revelation de describes the new city of Jerusalem, which becomes the headquarters for Jesus' millennial reign. And at the end of that time, at the end of a thousand years, Revelation says Satan is loose one last time and initiates a great battle against God. It's interesting. It is interesting that the rapture of the church, when Jesus comes back for his saints, there's only non-believers left behind. You've probably seen those in the movies or you know, read that whole series of books by being left behind. Jesus comes back for his people. And when he comes back with his people at the Battle of Armageddon and starts his 1,000-year reign, there will only be believers left on the earth. Only believers will be left to repopulate the world for that 1,000-year reign. Matthew 24, Jesus' words himself. These are words written in red in your Bible if you have one of those Bibles. In verse 36, it says, But of that day... And of that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, this is Jesus speaking, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the, no the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. See, the kingdoms of this world will stumble. The kingdoms of this world will fall, and the kingdom of God will be set up. But now, for believers, we, 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 
we kind of consider that to be a really attractive prophecy. You know, the kingdoms of this world will stumble and fall, and the kingdoms of God will be set up. All the good guys, it says, and you know what that means. All the good guys are you and all your friends, those guys. Those are the good guys. It's always been that way. No matter who you are, me and my friends, we're the good guys, and everybody else is the bad guys. But it says all the good, good guys will be victorious. They'll be set up in splendor, and they'll be reigning and ruling with the Messiah. We want that. We want that first. The Jewish people of Jesus' day wanted that first. And I even wonder right now how many of us would ask God today to skip all the rest of those things and get straight to the rapture, you know. Forget all this other stuff before things get really ugly. But what is required today, and yet for a little while I believe, is, is, is patience, is perseverance, it's trust, it's faith. Let me, let me share an example of how this works. We read this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 19, very, very uh, well-known event in Jesus' life. It's the story of Zacchaeus, if you remember that from Sunday school. You know, if you had Sunday school teacher, just a little man, and Zacchaeus was short, so she'd take the only man she had in flatten the graph, cut him in half, and use that for Zacchaeus. No, it's true. We, it's okay, the next Sunday you teach on healing, you sew him up together, but ta-da, he's good, you know, so that's all right. But the story of Zacchaeus, found in Matthew chapter 24, sorry, it's found in Luke chapter 19, I'll get there. Uh, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus entered the, the, and passed through Jericho. You know the story, it's about a week before Easter. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a, a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. I told you. Uh, so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. He was going to find Jesus. He was looking for Jesus. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they, who's they? The crowd around Jesus, when they saw it, they all complained. They all complained. See, this is not the Jesus they were looking for. I mean, Jesus had started good, coming down into Jerusalem, you know, and he sees this guy hiding in a, a sinner, hiding in a sycamore tree. You know, even sycamore trees have big leaves. You, it might have been a, just a miracle that Jesus saw him. But he sees Zacchaeus and says, hey, you up there, come on down. Everybody goes, yeah. Jesus is going to mow him to the ground like Elijah did, you know. No, no machine's gun then. But, you know, somehow Jesus was going to deal with Zacchaeus. But instead of doing what they wanted him to do, Jesus befriends the sinner. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't mow Zacchaeus down? Aren't you glad he didn't mow you down when you met him? Amen. Aren't you glad he made a friend with you? But the people of Jesus' day, the crowd around him, they weren't looking for that kind of Messiah. They were looking for the de-prophecy kind of Messiah. The one who would come and wipe out all the unbelievers, wipe out all the enemy. I say they were like, they were like a Panasonic, you know, slightly ahead of their time. 2,000 years ahead of their time. 
See, if you were really old, you'd remember that commercial on Pentecostal. Jesus is coming back. Now we can figure out it's going to be a two-parter as well. It is still a mystery. You don't know all of that stuff, but it's a mystery that lo many long to see. First Peter chapter 1 talks about this. Peter talking about this salvation that everybody was waiting for. What does salvation mean? Is it when he comes and mows down all the enemy and sets us up to rule and reign with them? It's a mystery. 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully all through the scripture who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time, when would this happen? The spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's the order. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering or te teaching us, telling us the things which now Peter's writing have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desired to look into. Now we know. Hindsight is so wonderful. Ah, this is starting to make sense. When Jesus comes back, only two groups of prophecies, messianic prophecies, get fulfilled. And now we're waiting for the rapture part. It's the, it's the time of the church. All the Gentiles, all those who will come, will come. And then the rapture. And that could happen any time. My dear family, that could happen any time. Everything's set up. Especially if you believe in the pre-tribulation the, the, the pre, the pre rapture where, you know, God comes down and takes out all the believers. Takes them to be with him. Some prophecies kind of hint at a great wedding feast. I'm not sure if that's going to be a seven years on earth, of earth time wedding feast, but we're going to be full, I'm sure. <laughs> but that could happen any time. As soon as that happens, other prophecies say that the temple will be set up. The, the, another temple in Jerusalem. Again, a hundred years ago, nobody would have thought they'd have, ever have a temple in Jerusalem again. It was destroyed. It's been, it's been wrecked. And all what Jesus had said would happen back, back in Matthew 24, where he says to the city of Jerusalem, like, not a stone will be left upon another, that happened. That happened. So how could you possibly believe you know, that there would be a new temple set up in Jerusalem until the events start to unfold. And we see Israel becomes a nation. Hebrew becomes its language. They claim Jerusalem as their capital city. And they're already preparing. We've seen some of the, those of us who, from Grand Prairie who went there, I forget when it was, 2010 or something, a whole lot of, uh, we saw even gold instruments that were going to be used in a, in a new temple. They're getting ready. It could happen. We need to be ready. We need to be ready as well. So then what? If that's the case, and it is, then what is our action plan? What, what should be our action plan? How should we respond to this? Well, let's continue reading in 1 Peter, in chapter 1. The angels decided to look into this, or were just desiring to look into this. We've seen what they 
is now been revealed. In verse 13, it says, Therefore, because of that, gird up your loins, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your faith fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this is where we look. That is who we focus on. It says in verse 14, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the, to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you, by, by, let me try that again, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It continues to say, uh, Therefore, in verse 13, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Whether to, be, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Number 16, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love their brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The Apostle Paul, in making his defense before the government and the Roman authorities of his day at the end of his life, we read about those events in Acts chapter 24. And he's explaining what he's been doing. And in verse 14 of that chapter, he says, But this I confess to you. This is in front of the, all the, the, the religious leaders and to the Roman authorities. He says, That according to the way, which is called a sect, that's what they called Christians in those days, a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers. Paul, laying it on the line, this is my focus. He says, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. See, all those scriptures, Jesus didn't come and negate them. He came and fulfilled them. He came and made them all true. Some he made deliberately. You know, sometimes you read about Jesus did this, and they ask him, why are you doing that? And he says, it's to fulfill Scripture. And there's other things that he did that were just, they just happened. It was not something he could choose. You know, he couldn't choose to be born a virgin, from a virgin, or he couldn't choose that his dad, when he was maybe less than two years old, would take him to Egypt. Maybe he would have chosen that if he had had a chance, you know. Gets to see the pyramids before they get all worn out, but... You know, the stuff that he couldn't choose. But some stuff he did choose. He did deliberately, and some stuff just happened. All in fulfillment of Scripture. The Apostle Paul is writing here, I choose to believe all the things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. This is Acts 24. Do we have that? Yep, Good. This being so, I myself, he says, what does he do? What's his response? What's his action plan? I always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and toward men. We have to listen to God. My dear friends and family, we find our compass. We find our direction in him. That's how Paul lived. That is how we should live, isn't it? This is how the men and the women of the, of the Bible lived. And in these days, our focus, our constant thinking needs to be on God, on Jesus. 
Otherwise, we will fall into fear. We will fall into despair. We'll fall into anger. Maybe even fall into rebellion. Become disappointed. Complaining. We belong. We belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a different world. We need to look at him and not look around in despair. Amen? I know that was a little intense. And I'm usually supposed to be funny. Most of you know my messages sometimes have a joke in there or something like that. So this might be a good, a good chance to just uh, show you that I can be funny even when I'm trying to be intense. Um, I have some slides for you. Because what I shared is that, oh, not yet. Oh, that's okay. Oh, this is, this is embarrassing. Thanks. Yeah. Wait, Colleen, what are you doing? <laughs> You're embarrassing me. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the funny one, Colleen, not you. But I've shared that it's, it sounds like we know what's going on in the Bible. We've, we've, we've gained some understanding. We've gained some wisdom. Old age will do that to you, right? It'll do that. Isn't old age supposed to bring wisdom? Yeah, it is, right? Right, Ron? Yes, okay, good. Here's the wisdom I've gained. Now we can see the first slide. This is a picture of my day. If you were born after 19, you know, after, if you were one of the baby boomers, you're a baby boomer if you were born 1946 or on, you know, up until 1966. This is men in the 60s. This is what I wore. <laughs> Even worse. Because I couldn't, exp I couldn't really actually afford all that expensive clothes. Sometimes I would make my own. Actually, there is a picture of me. Um, I was the president of the student union, of course. No, not of course. <laughs> that didn't sound right. <laughs> uh, I happened to become the president of the student union. And so I was in charge of giving um, the little diploma for the grade 12 class. I was in grade, I was the new guy. In those days, you only, you only graduated in September when everybody knew you had actually passed your grade and that kind of stuff. All of you old people, you remember that, right? Nowadays, they actually graduate in April, even though they don't really pass their courses, but let's not go there. So <laughs> there's, actually a, there's actually a picture of me. I couldn't afford clothes like that. I, I had just plaid bell-bottom pants, you know, the nice ones. And, we wore in those days fluffy sleeved shirts and frilly collars and stuff. And the girls even frillier, but the guys were like that. And, and I, couldn't, I didn't have any peace signs, if you know what a peace sign is. So I made one out of a pipe cleaner, <laughs> hung that on my neck. This was an official handing out in front of all the parents. And I'm wearing a, a pipe cleaner, you know. <laughs> that's, that's embarrassing. Almost as embarrassing as that. And those of you who wore that clothes, you ought to be embarrassed. You know, you see that? That's awkward to see. But I'm, I'm, I'm able to put this up today because I have another slide. Want to put the next one, Colleen? This is today. <laughs> don't, laugh, don't laugh too hard because this is actually biblical. This is biblical. 2 Kings chapter 2. Remember, Elisha calls upon these bears in the woods to come. They maul these kids. A bunch of boys were killed. The girls got away. And they, and they, they got ice cream, I'm sure. That's what happened. 
Well, we kind of gain some wisdom with age, don't we? I'm hoping. And in today's world, you can, you can give it that note. I love that slide. In today's world, we can't even wait, though. There's a point to this. We can't even wait for our genes to get old. We actually go and buy them pre-old, pre-tattered, pre-torn, and we pay extra premium for it. And it's even the same way with carpets. If you've seen the one we have in the hallway, it looks like an ancient Persian rug, you know, well-worn. That's brand new. And we can't wait for wearing out a carpet. Here's the thing. We have to wait. We have to wait our turn and enjoy each season as it comes. And I know that this is sometimes hard to do and it takes patience and, and that is something that we are sorely lacking. But by the way, <laughs> I'm not going to go there already. I'm already starting to lose you. I was actually going to use this to tell you that I'm retiring. Some of you might not know that. I've reached that age where I can do that. And I know that in Christian circles, and I've heard this myself, the word retire isn't in the Bible. I found it. I found it. Numbers chapter 8. I've even got it for you to prove I found that chapter. Numbers chapter 8, verse 24 says, This applies to the Levites. And that's, you know, priests and pastors. Men 25 years old or more shall come to take part in the work of the tent of meeting. It says... But the, at the age of 50, they must retire. It's there. From their regular service and work no longer. It says they may assist their brothers in performing their duties at the tent of meeting, but they themselves must not do the work. Sorry, I'm done. <laughs> it ends with this thing. It says, this then is how you are to assign the responsibilities of the Levites. So this year, I am transitioning out of full-time employment and going on to the next best thing that God has for my wife and I. Those of you who know me know that I have been a teacher in the public school system for 18 years and that I have been an ordained pastor for a little over 22 years. And I hope to be applying Numbers 8, verse 26, which says, assisting other ministries in completing their assignments till at least I break the 22-year record, right? That would bring me to uh, 87, God willing. And should the Lord tarry, that'd be a great time. Should the Lord tarry, that's, a, that's an old way of saying if Jesus doesn't come back by then. See, Christians have been waiting for generations for Jesus to come back. Close to 2,000 years, and we all know that Jesus himself said in numerous ways, in numerous parables, in numerous stories that he shared that the owner, you know, or the landlord, or, or that the master of the house would go on a trip. And after a long time, when they weren't expecting it, the owner of the vineyard or the owner of the land or the landlord or the master would return. Jesus said, after a long time. 2,000 years is a long time. But I believe that every generation should live as if they were the last one. And that includes us, right? Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back soon. 
See, the Jews of Jesus' day, they were upset with him. In that passage of scripture we saw in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus befriends the tax collector, the sinner, Zacchaeus, and they start complaining because Jesus isn't acting like the Messiah that they were looking for. They started complaining. They were looking for somebody who would fulfill their version of the scriptures, their favorites of the messianic prophecies, their chosen ones, the one that had been written over the centuries regarding the Messiah, regarding the Christ, the one who would come and make all things right. And in that passage of Luke 19, Zacchaeus was supposed to be the enemy or part of the enemy. The Israels of that day wanted Jesus to cut him down, finish him off. But rather than that, Jesus befriends him and doesn't condemn him. That crowd around Jesus were indeed under Roman oppression. We know that. And their situation was dire in many ways. The authorities could do almost anything to them and there was almost nothing they could do about it. Sound familiar? <laughs> they were looking for a Messiah who would be on their side and destroy their enemy. Take the Romans out, take out the ruling of government and return them to their former glory and they would be in charge and they would be running and ruling and all that other stuff. That is what they wanted. Have we changed? Are we different from those guys? We need to be. See, they felt that Jesus fulfilling their preferred prophecies would be good for them. They were the good guys. Yet, they probably knew that individually each one of them was a sinner perhaps a thief, maybe a gossip, maybe a complainer, but they weren't really bad compared to the others. And they even had an advantage, a, a disadvantage, a disadvantage that we don't have. You see, today we have the advantage of hindsight. We can look back and say, oh, it's making sense now. But in those days, those, those, those pockets of prophecy it was difficult to see the bigger picture. The Christmas, the Easter, the rapture, and the Armageddon, all the different pockets. And then the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And us with him. See, those seemed all jumbled together into these huge mountain ranges of prophecy. And you can hardly blame them that they only saw the best ones for themselves. And they couldn't see all of the mountains because there's these valleys in between. The first coming of Christ, the second coming, it was a two-parter. These past few weeks, we've seen some of that. Some of the difficulties we have with these almost contradictory prophecies. Celebrating and remembering Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, which we did just two weeks ago. Coming as the king. And then the celebration of this Easter weekend we just went through and the baptism that we celebrate. The crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. You contrast that with his resurrection on Easter morning. These all seem so diametrically opposed, even at odds with each other, until we look at the big picture. And it's when we see the big picture that we get a clearer and better understanding of exactly what is going on. And I hope that I've helped this morning us get a bigger picture of that. 
Every, every Palm Sunday we celebrate Jesus' victorious entry into Jerusalem. But even what we celebrated that past Sunday was a little bit confusing. I'd like us to just take a little look back at what really we celebrated. Jesus coming down from the Mount of Olives and crossing the little valley and going up through the eastern gate into Jerusalem. People shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. But in verse 41 of that chapter, Luke 19, the same chapter where we read about Zacchaeus, starting in 41, it says, And when he drew near, this is Palm Sunday, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, speaking to Jerusalem, even you had known at this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. He's weeping. And I believe the next sentence is why. It says, because, he speaks to Jerusalem, you did not know the time of your visitation. Oh, never let that happen to us. Never let it be said that we missed the time of Jesus' visitation to us when his presence is here, inviting, attracting, his light shining on us. See, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. But the people in the city didn't see it. So he's weeping because they don't see him for who he really is. And they reject him. This morning, I want to consider the fact that Jesus still is among us. He still is the King. He's the Savior. He's the Anointed One, the Christ. But we need to recognize Him for who He is. I have a few questions that will help us go there. Colleen's going to put them on the board or on the screen. A few questions we can ask ourselves. The first one is, do I have a false expectation of what God should be like. Something I want Him to do for me rather than be thankful that He has already done everything for me. A second question we can ask ourselves is, do I expect Jesus to be in agreement with all my political stances? That should hurt a bit. Because we'd like him to engage in the world around us, but he's not here to engage in the world around us. He's here to engage with us, his people, his chosen ones, the ones who will see his light and come into his marvelous presence. And the third question we can ask ourselves is, do I expect Jesus to always destroy my enemies to keep me safe, to keep me comfortable? Because how many of you know, Jesus is far more concerned with our character than with our comfort. He's far more concerned with our salvation than with our safety. And we need to look to see what he wants, what he's doing. I'd like to take us into Acts chapter 24. In Acts chapter 24, we read the Apostle Paul finishing up his his, uh, his ministry on earth. And in verse 13 of Matthew 24, he says, um, he's making a, 
he's making his defense towards the government authorities. He says, nor can they prove, talking about the people who had brought accusations against him, nor can they prove the things for which they now accuse me. But this I confess, he says, that according to the way, which is called a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written, we've read that already before, all things that are written in the law and the prophets, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I always strive to have a clear conscience without offense toward God and men. I want to repeat that, that passage of Scripture this morning. I want to repeat one other one, but that one's so important. This is how we ought to act. In front of the king, in front of the king of his day, King Agrippa, in uh, just a few chapters later in Acts 26, Paul is still making this, his, he makes this plea. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, King Agrippa, he's going to explain his actions. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. You know, Paul had a vision on the road to Damascus that turned him to Christ. He met Jesus Christ. He did not not see Jesus' visitation upon him. He says, But I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. He says, For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and to great, saying no other things than that those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Here's the order. That the Christ would suffer. That he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. That's been happening since that day. The Bible continues to say, Now as Paul thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You Christians, you sound crazy. But Paul said, I'm not mad most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. And then he turns to King Agrippa and he says, For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. And then he asked this question, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He's challenging him. You've read the scripture. You've read the prophecies. Jesus tells us beforehand. God even boasts about this. I am the God who can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. And as these things unfold, it should be, con it should be convincing us of the accuracy and the truth of the Bible. Of what God is doing is going to happen. His will will be done. Nothing is going to stop that from happening. And Paul knows that King Agrippa has been reading the Old Testament. He's been reading all these prophecies and he has heard about some of these coming true. We have seen or heard and celebrate some of these coming true. But we also need to know that they will continue to unravel and the universe will unfold just the way God said it would. Do you notice the last sentence of that paragraph, of that message, of that passage? Paul says, King Agrippa, I know you believe in the prophets. I know you believe the Bible. You know King Agrippa's answer is? Paul, I'm almost persuaded to become a Christian. 
almost you persuade me. See, King Agrippa, he missed his visitation from Jesus, the invitation to become a Christian. To close this morning, we're going to go back to where we started. Worship team's going to come up, and we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 16. It's what this has all been about. Where Jesus is telling himself, and he asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they have all kinds of answers. Some say, well, you're a prophet. You're, you're Elijah. You, you're like, you've, you've come back from the dead. You're, you're somebody from the past. But then Jesus cuts through all of that with this question. Who do you say that I am? That's the most important thing this morning. Who do you say he is to you? Is he your savior? Is he just a good teacher that lived long ago and taught some good stuff about loving your enemies and doing good to those who hurt you and, you know, being nice and kind and meek and mild? A good teacher? Or is he your healer? Is he your redeemer? The one who died on the cross for you? Who, if you had been the only person to sin, he would have died for you? Just to win you back. I know here in this place this morning, we've been hearing all kinds of scripture. I'm here to attest to their veracity. If you're online watching this morning, you could check all of these out, find out if what I've been saying is true, whether those prophecies really were written way back then or is it something that was added on last year or after 1948 or after they thought they knew what was going on. No. They found scraps of the Bible that was written called the Dead Sea Scrolls that verified, man, it has been miraculous how the Bible has been watched over shepherded to our present day. The Bible. The best-selling book of all time. Telling the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Splitting time in two. Before his time and after his time. Translate into more languages than any other Bible, any other book. All the other books put together, I believe. And we can read it today and we can find out who is this Jesus. We can read about the archaeological finds that prove what the Bible says is true. They find a city because they look through it and says, well, the Bible is wrong because that city isn't even there. And then later on they find it and it proves the Bible is true. Even Pastor Charlotte, you shared one of those just the other day, you know, about this, the science keeps proving the Bible is true. But here's the thing. It's not head knowledge that's going to help you know who Jesus is to you. It takes faith. It's by faith that we receive and believe Jesus is the Son of God. And what the Bible says about him is true. We believe it. He died on that cross. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He didn't fake it. They didn't have fake news back then. Well, maybe they did. But it's true. Jesus died. And he was put in the tomb. 
and the angels desired, is this going to happen? Did Jesus live a sinless life? Can he pay for other people? Can he pay for us? And then we celebrate Easter, the empty tomb. Death could not hold him. Jesus gained for us a victory over death. His life, his death can pay for our sin and reconnect us, reconcile us to God, our Father. Reconnect that spiritual line that when we die, God sees his spirit in us if we have received him and believe in him. And him seeing his spirit in us, he cannot deny his own. He welcomes us into heaven. We get to go into heaven because his spirit is in us. And we get to spend eternity with God. And we can sing like we do some songs that say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Because we've died and we're still connected. We're still attached to our holy God. Made righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus did. See, that takes faith. That takes believing. No amount of head knowledge, I believe, will ever do that. Even the man, Lee Strobel, who wrote about, he wrote the book, The Case for Christ. He was trying to prove to his wife this Jesus thing. It's all a hoax. It's all fake. And he does the study. He does the research. He's actually an investigative reporter, a journalist. And he's doing it the same way you would try to verify facts that have happened. Look for witnesses. Look for people who can collaborate the story. And he's digging in, trying to disprove the claims of the Bible. Of course, you know what happens. He gets so much information. He goes, man got to be true. But that takes the steps of faith. Even that. Jesus turned to Peter and said, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has. You know what we need to do to receive that? We need to ask. We need to ask. If you're here this morning saying, I want proof that God exists, you're not going to get it. But if you ask by faith, Lord Jesus, show me you. Come into my heart. See, the world is upside down. The world says, show me and I'll believe it. But God says, Believe, and I'll show you. Let's make a choice today. It's a choice to believe. It's a choice to accept by faith that what Jesus did on the cross was for me. Thanks again for listening to this message from Victory Church Grand Prairie. You can stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by using at VictoryChurchGP. If you have any questions, would like to access our online resources, or would like to sow into this ministry, you can visit us at www.victorygp.com. You can also text to give. Just text 587-207-4387 and follow the prompting. Thanks again for joining us at Victory GP. Reach. Teach. Mobilize.